Hello, and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly, well, your podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Schieber. I just fell right back into it. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh, though. The one thing that that does is lets our, our listeners know that we record that part live. We don't we don't fake that part. That's, no. that's legit. That is too legit. Oh boy! Oh, I gotta stop now. I uh, <laughs> you're in my wheelhouse of pop culture now. <laughs> Finally, although I did see uh, Tana posted that Leverage is coming back uh, on your Facebook page, so finally you'll be back into uh, uh, recent pop cultural references as soon as it comes out. You know, Leverage for me is like uh, the boomers' version of like every CSI. <laughs> Or SVU or whatever they are. Oh, man. No, it's CSI because that's off the air. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we are back again this week, which is exciting. Um, For somebody, I'm sure. Well, for us to at least, I guess. I don't know. Um, How's your week been done? Uh, it's been it's been a roller coaster, but you know I had a, a wonderful conversation with my brother, uh, and that's always great, you know. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to speak uh, at a church uh, in New York, which I hate traveling. So this is everyone being on Zoom is delightful because <laughs> you know you can guest speak somewhere else in the in the world and not have to leave your bed. Um, so. That was really amazing because, you know, I have such a close relationship with this church in uh, Rochester, New York. And so just the opportunity to kind of beam in and be a part of their uh, midweek study was just awesome. Uh, So, yeah, so I'm on a I'm on a high right now. What about you? Well, good. Uh, It's been all right. Um, Yeah, we've just been checking along. My wife is still commuting uh, to Columbus right now for work. So that's been kind of rough uh because she's just been gone longer than normal this past stretch but she'll be back and it'll be nice so we'll have almost a week together so it'll be cool um what else has been going on not a whole lot just you know i i so i started this community outreach position uh about three or four weeks ago now almost and it's been really weird to try and figure out how that works during a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, nothing like uh, immediately having to accomplish something no one else has had to accomplish in that position or anything. Yeah, yeah, but uh, things are actually moving along pretty well with that, which is um, pretty exciting. So I I guess things are kind of firing on most of their cylinders right now. Um, Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I guess there's, I'm sure I could figure out something to complain about if I think hard enough, but I don't know. It's been good. Well, you can always uh, edit it in later. That's true. Yeah. I'll, uh, <laughs> yes, I'll do that after I, after we're done. You'll throw a three minute rant in later. Yeah. But it'll be during a part where like, we're actually into the topic and people want to hear what comes next. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll start my Festivus rant. Bad form, uh, uh, ranting. Yeah. Man, um, so I guess 
just want to jump into the to this week's topic. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, we're jumping back in on the on the text. Um, yeah, which it feels like it's been a while since we focused on a particular part of of that. You know, as as a teacher, I always struggle with uh, teaching like on a Sunday at church or what have you on topics as opposed to passages. Passages are really helpful to me because they keep me focused. Um, but passages don't always make the most uh, interesting podcasts. So uh, oftentimes we do topics or, or questions or things. And, and that's great. But I, I am looking forward to this conversation, though I think I think this conversation does a really uh, will have an interesting balance of both passage and topic. So, yeah. So, um, I don't know how do you how do you want to introduce? Do you just want me to read the passage and then we'll just go from there? Yeah, do it. Okay. So we're focusing this week on uh, Matthew five twenty seven through thirty, and uh, it just this is the New International Version. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for, all, or than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty well, easygoing, laid-back passage. Definitely light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, George. Uh, so, in all fairness, and anybody listening from that group last night in Rochester is going to find this very familiar because this is what I taught about uh, last night. Because they're going through a series of reconstruction, uh, a reconstruction Bible study, which I think is such a cool concept, right? Um, in which they're reconstructing a lot of their ideas of theology, faith, beliefs, and stuff. Uh, and this section that they're going through is all on passages that have to do with sexuality uh, and uh, healthy sexual ethics. And uh, so I got the opportunity to teach on this. And this is actually one of my, one of my favorite passages on uh on on sex and sexuality um, to talk about because, and this might sound strange, because there's been so much damage done by this verse uh, or these handful of verses. Like, I don't know if there's many verses that have caused more psychological, emotional, physical damage um, to people than these few past, these few verses. So, um, so let me ask you, George, like when this passage uh, has been brought up that you've heard it either taught in the church. And it was funny because one of the things someone said last night in the group that I thought was pretty spot on is it's not often taught by the, from the pulpit, but youth pastors love this passage. So I can't speak to the youth pastor part. I can say that I've never heard it taught from the pulpit, which, you know, when uh, you and I tried to record an episode yesterday and it just didn't feel right. Um, and so when you told me that you were talking about this and how it was one of your favorite passages, I thought it was bizarre because you and I have never talked about it, Mm. which I, which makes me very excited about this for that reason. Um, so I had 
heard this taught by associate pastors or, um, you know, over a podcast in a Bible study format 10 years, like, yeah, 10 years ago. Okay. Um, And it was most of the time I've heard the uh, Sermon on the Mount taught. It has been in the the realm of uh, morality control. Okay. Um, or uh, just yeah, just ways to control being and acting and thinking and and whatnot. Which you know, I I struggle on how I feel about that because I think there are some good aspects to it. But when you don't know what to do with a text like this one, mm-hmm. um, most of it it's like that. Uh, uh, I can't remember if it's first or second Corinthians when Paul's talking about speaking in tongues. But once you get to that point in the text, you just kind of ignore it and roll on. Mm. So I've had the ignore it and roll on and the hardened fast, um, double down. This is, this is how it is. Don't do this. You're going to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> and that really screws up. A lot of, yeah, like you said, a lot of people, especially when, you know, my experience with this has been evangelical. So you're talking about a good sexual ethic and that doesn't exist outside of abstinence and, um, or abstinence only. And, uh, you know, the illusion that when you're married, everything's fine. Yeah. You know, sexual ethics in the Bible, if we actually taught New Testament sexual ethics it would be unrecognizable in the church right because we don't even teach new testament sexual ethics right like uh, i think a big example would be at least according to pauline thought that uh singleness is the highest call and so we should be teaching in our uh youth pastor gigs and from the pulpit we should be preaching towards singleness, not to marriage. Um, yeah. And that is a, a, a consolation prize, which is how I've usually heard that taught, oh, yeah. which is so messed up. Yeah. I think there was a ministry in Blacksburg when my spouse was doing her PhD at a church called, uh, Oh, what was it? It, it rhymed. So I'm, so what I'm going to say is not uh, the right title but it was something like couples and third wheels. Um, and it huh. was a young adult ministry. Okay. About like couples and single people. Um, and it was like, we're like, Oh my gosh, like what, what a terrible, horrible thing. But I know third wheel was definitely part of the title. And I was just like, like why way to just make someone feel like an attachment. Uh, so so yeah, so um, back to this passage. Um, it was interesting in the group last night because I asked this group and there was about, uh, I'd say between 20, 25 people, maybe a few more than that one. And, um, you know, the the amount of things that people have heard from this passage, whether it be, um, you know, some of the books that often get handed to guys like with like man in the mirror, I think is one of the books. And, uh, and for a lot of the women, they had mentioned that uh, this was a way to tell women that they cause men problems. 
by the way they dress or by the way that they act and that they need to be careful not to cause lust. And my first thought to that was, yes, clearly this passage that you just read, George, is talking to the women. Oh, that was my first thought, he said sarcastically. Right, so like, it's just interesting to hear the way that this passage has either been taught or implied to people and all of it is is heavily steeped in shame and guilt um and i think that that's a real shame uh the other piece that i would say i think is interesting before we start diving in and pulling it apart a little bit is we've decided to take a really simple reading of this passage right like yeah like it, it just obviously says. Well, the Bible clearly states, Don, that right, exactly. you need to cut your hand off and pluck your eye out. You know, something I've noticed is we either won't teach these passages that we think have a clear, um, a clear or simple reading if it, if it steps on our toes too much, right? <laughs> Why we don't hear it from the pulpit very often. Um, or when it does step on our toes a lot, then all of a sudden we're interested in cultural context, right? Yeah. Um, yep. If it doesn't affect us, we're just going to do a simple reading. Um, so, so first of all, George, let me, let me ask you in your reading of it, and let's just focus at least now on verse, I think it's 27 and 28. So if you want, could you read those again? Yeah. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay. So tell me the simple reading of that to you without just repeating it. Uh, like put in modern layman's terms, if you had to t- discuss this with a bunch of teenagers, how would you tell them? Well, I would probably start by sitting on a chair backwards and being trying to act cool with all the other kids because that's a that's that's an inside joke between a couple of friends and I, and be like, "Hey, kids, you know, don't that thing when you look at a woman, or you know, don't do that." So, I think that that is how it's going to be taught, right? That's um, how I've experienced it. So do you remember the huge dust up um, of uh, of like all these Christian bloggers and stuff talking about the danger of yoga pants? What? <laughs> oh yeah, what? Just, just Google Christians in <laughs> yoga pants. Uh, okay. Are you, you're doing that now? Yeah. You're, you're going to find, um, just don't Google image search it. Jeez. No, I, I'm, trust me, I'm not. Uh, well, the first thing that pops up are ads for a bunch of really baggy yoga pants. Baggy? Yeah. Like. <laughs> okay. Wait. So but this then, brings it back to MC Hammer again. We started out too legit to quit, and now, now we're going to. But then again, I'm like a couple, then it says, there are videos where it's, you know, should Christians wear yoga pants? Is it okay for Christians to wear yoga pants? Christian bloggers shuns yoga pants to avoid lustful thoughts. 
like to the Christian men and women debating yoga man. Okay. I didn't realize that this was a thing. I remember when there was an issue of whether or not Christians should even do yoga, but <clears throat> well, yoga pants gets, gets to the, to the heart of it. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Okay. Anyhow. So I'm just going to use yoga pants as my shortcut for referring to lustful thoughts. Okay. Okay. So we've taken this passage and made it all about yoga pants, right? That, uh, that we need to be careful uh, not to, uh, to engage in any kind of thoughts that yoga pants might stir. Obviously, it's a real problem within Christianity. Um, who knew, right? I didn't. Um, and so Jesus is here talking about yoga pants. Okay. And it's such a strange thing. He's having this mo one of the most profound teachings of subver subverting empire, of uh, subverting uh, the oppression that Israel is experiencing, right? Like that's what the Sermon on the Mount's about, right? Like flipping everything upside down, challenging power, challenging all of this stuff. And in the middle of it, Jesus goes, oh, yeah, and by the way, um, when you're at your local Starbucks I and someone walks in in yoga pants, either look away or, or pop out that right eye, you know? Yeah. Um, which is such a strange, like, halt to this teaching. And let me ask you a question, George, and maybe your experience is different than mine. When I met my wife, so I'm going to start with a little bit of a preamble. When I met my wife, um, I was playing volleyball, playing beach volleyball. And I was coming down to the volleyball courts and there was a bunch of guys playing and there was this one really cute human sitting alongside the court that instantly I was like, hey, how are you doing, right? And through that, I met Tana. We played volleyball. We started dating, got married, still married. Um, now, it wasn't yoga pants. It was volleyball shorts. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, but, you know, maybe you had a different experience. Maybe you did not find your spouse on jet uh physically attractive when you met her this that could get you in a lot of trouble depending on how you ask further from the truth we met on so we had met in person and then nine months later met online so the like i was immediately attracted to her before i even knew anything about her yeah so this whole passage makes no sense imagine if jesus is saying that you may not have sexual attraction to another human being until you're married to them. I don't have to imagine because that's how it's been taught to me. Right. But, but that makes no sense. Yeah. Zero sense that all of us walk around with blinders on and never have sensual or sexual attraction to another human being until we're married to them. Well, it's like you're, you're, trying to <laughs> it's almost like you're trying to say you can you have the ability to control your sexuality 
as in I can control who I'm attracted to. I choose to be attracted to Jet when in reality, that was like, I was immediately attracted to her, whether I had a choice in that or not. Right. And I think it's important that we, we recognize that it's not just that I find someone beautiful because there's people that I find to be beautiful that I'm not sexually attracted to. Oh, agreed. So I think it's important for us to use the sexual attraction piece in this because otherwise people say, well, then it's not lust. It's just attracted. And Jesus isn't condemning being attracted. Um, I'm saying like that you are drawn sexually to this person. I think very few of us um, that are in any kind of relationship would say, I'm not sexually attracted to the person I'm in a relationship with. I think there are some, some relationships that are like that, but I think that's the, uh, you know, that's the, the, uh, oh my gosh, what's it called? Something to the rule. That's the exception, exception? to the rule. Okay. Yeah, that's the exception to the rule. That's not the, the standard, right? And so for Jesus to be saying, you cannot have any kind of sexual attraction to another human being is absurd. It's the strangest thing because one of the first things that happens in the creation narrative is sexual attraction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so clearly Adam lusted after Eve. I mean, I think when God creator, it was out of his rib and a pair of yoga pants. And so, you know, Adam is attracted to her and they have a child. Um, this is really interesting to me because the way we teach this is so harmful and literally makes no sense that God would make us as creatures, uh, sexual creatures, and then tell us that even though you're a sexual creature, you are not able to be sexually attracted to someone else, which is just an absurdity. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in verse 28, where it says, uh, go ahead and read that again. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, but I say to you that everyone, uh, oh, so, I'm sorry. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is actually quoting uh, or heavily alluding to a passage in the Torah when he says that verse. Okay. I have you, no idea what passage it is. Okay. So uh, go to Exodus 20. And you're going to find a popular passage in there. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I just like every time you ask me if I know something and I think I don't know it. And then you tell me where to go. It's like, Jesus, I. No, Jesus is not in Exodus 20. Well, uh, I think it would depend on which pastor you talk to. Uh, That's touche. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Oh, nope. That's no? He's quoting that in verse 27. Oh. So what's he quoting in verse 28? Uh, oh. Uh, 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 you shall not cover your neighbor's house, uh, your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Yes, correct. So the word lust 
okay. is the same in the Septuagint for the word covet. And neighbor's wife is the same word that we translate as woman in Matthew 5. Okay, so why is that important to connect this with verse 17 of Exodus 20? Why would you guess? Um, let me read it first and I will find out. <laughs> Wait a second. You said Exodus verse 17? Exodus 20 verse 17. Why? I'm sorry. <laughs> I had my I had the Matthew tab open on accident, so I was like, "What? It's almost word for word." So, what do I think? It's important that uh, Jesus is quoting in verse uh, twenty eight. He's he's alluding to Exodus twenty, verse seventeen. Yes, because the people listening would have picked up on what he was doing right away. Sure, but what would they have heard? Like, what's going on in verse 17 of Exodus 20? What is that passage not about? Uh, can you narrow down the question a little bit? Sure. Um, if your neighbor's house was wearing yoga pants, uh -huh. or your neighbor's ox or donkey were wearing yoga pants mm -hmm. or your neighbor's field was wearing yoga pants. Okay. Would you want to be intimate with them? No, probably not. I like that you said probably not. Like you're <laughs> going to leave yourself some space. Some, just... <laughs> you want you want a little negotiating room there. I, I mean, it that. depends on the corners of those fields. You just never know. I mean, it does talk about your neighbor's ass in here. Um, okay. Anyway. So, so this verse is not about sex. Verse 17 of Exodus 20 is not a full thoughts about your house. You shall not have lustful thoughts about your neighbor's wife. That's the one we can make the connection action with that it's yoga pants his male servant right uh, yep. or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor so this passage is not about sex it would what is it about uh it's it's about uh not wanting to or oh man i love being on the spot uh it is about not um, being jealous about the shit that your neighbor owns or has. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much there, right? That's like uh, being dissatisfied with what you have by comparing yourself to what your neighbor has. Um, I, I think it's what we do on social media all the time, right? There's sometimes there's nothing more yeah. depressing than scrolling through social media and seeing all the vacation photos. Now I realize in our time of social distancing, there's not as many of those photos going on. Well, there's not as many as current vacation photos, but something a trend I've seen is people posting places where they have been as a 
oh, I can't, it'll be great as soon as this whole thing is lifted to go back. Right. But like, I mean, I think about some of the, the most inadequate, the most depressed, the most sad, the most disappointed I have felt in my life is when I'm scrolling through my peers' Facebook highlights and seeing all the things that they've achieved, all the places they've gone, all the things that they own or have. And then I think, I don't have any of that. Yeah. And I create this Voltron uh, person, social media person that has all that stuff. I combine all my friends into this one giant thing and, and, my life is just in comparison is, is a disaster, right? Like, yeah. you know, I can't even adult well um, type thing. And, you know, whether it's, you know, families who are at home right now who are posting all these things that they're doing with their kids and other people are like, I can barely survive the day. And so you're just constantly comparing so there's, first of all, that comparison that demonstrates inadequacy. Can you think of anything else that this idea of coveting what your neighbor has um, also does other than just creating inadequacy in you? Um, I, I mean, it could potentially drive you to do harmful things either to yourself or to them. Oh, sure. It could definitely drive you to violence. Yeah. Right. Um, what about uh, if your neighbor's a total asshole, but has everything that you want? Um, How does that make you feel? Even worse. <laughs> See, for me, it makes me go, they don't deserve it. I deserve that. Ah, okay. I I deserve to be the one that has a nice home. I like, I have found myself in the rut as a pastor, sometimes going, I have sacrificed so much in my life because unfortunately I'm not one of those pastors that have like the, the mega church with the huge income that goes with it. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately only in some ways, right. Um, actually in really very few ways, but, um, but there's moments when my life is tough that I'm like, God, I've like sacrificed everything. And why is everyone else making out in this life so much better than I am? Right? Like, have you ever had moments like that? Maybe not that exact verbatim type sure. thinking. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can think of many times in my life where I've had that. So when Jesus is talking about adultery, it doesn't make sense for him to say, uh, you know, the next thing I tell you not to even covet your neighbor's, you know, livestock, right? <laughs> He's trying to make connection here that adultery isn't just about, uh, you know, sexual uh, interaction outside of your marriage. Mm -hmm. He's also saying that it's, in the same way in the verse prior. So what's the section prior to this in Matthew five? It is. Uh, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, but whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. 
And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before you go to the altar. First be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard. You'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So I'm going to paraphrase just so we don't <coughs> have to deal with that uh, mouthful. Uh, is if you even have hatred in your heart, he equivocates that to murder. Yes. Right. So I have hated things and not had the desire to murder it. Right. Or them. I, I would say most people have. Right. Hopefully. And so I don't think Jesus is trying to say that uh, hatred is murder. But hatred in some way is a form of thinking, believing, behaving that is death to something. Hmm. Can you imagine that? Like that yeah, I, death to a relationship? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, how many, <laughs> how many feuds uh, have gone on that could have been fixed over a conversation Absolutely. as a misunderstanding, especially in the digital era. Like, yep. you know, th- like you were saying, uh, posts on social media about um, whatever, name a subject. Somebody well, gets I, upset. Like, you could argue Jesus is addressing cancel culture in this. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing about nuance is once you spend time digging into it, you find out that things are not binary. Right. So then, so Jesus is saying hatred leads to, we'll just say cancel culture. And I realize for the listeners that want to pick that apart and nuance that and say, yeah, but um, I get it. We're speaking in broad strokes as always. I'm being lazy here um, because I don't want this to be a five hour podcast. Um, Well, I mean, we do. We just don't want them to listen to a five hour podcast. So in this, in this moment, right, Jesus is saying, you know, hatred leads to cancel culture. Cancel culture is in some effect murdering someone's, uh, it has the same impact as murdering someone in your life. Uh, and again, that's a stretch. That's an overstatement. Uh, Jesus is great about making bombastic statements, right? Um, so here he's talking about hatred. The opposite of hatred is desiring or coveting right? Like here you despise it and you want it far away from you here. You desire it so much. You want it it for yourself. And so Jesus is putting these two things kind of side by side, right? And saying that, you know, both of these things lead to destruction, um, whether it be hatred or, uh, desiring something too greatly. Right. Um, and I don't think it's about sex. You know, Jesus is saying uh, in the same way that murder isn't always about killing someone. In fact, the rabbi said that if you embarrass someone public, it is the same as murdering them. Uh, And so 
because you've ruined their reputation. You've ruined, uh, and so it's the same thing as killing them uh, because you've destroyed their reputation. Uh, and Jesus is doing something similar in this Sermon on the Mount to say that it's it's not that you're cheating on someone as much as you're cheating on your life. You're cheating on the things that you have. You're cheating on your current situation. You're cheating on uh, the things around you, right? Like if you live dissatisfied with what you have and you always live in a fantastical place of what you deserve and what you should have, you stop living in in your current moment. So you're cheating on your own life. Uh, you're cheating on your own uh, well-being even. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so this, this passage becomes so much bigger because let me also add this. The first, I think it's at least the first 10 to 15 times that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uses the word that is translated here as lust and in Exodus 20 as covet. It's, it's not used around sex. It's just like you went out in the wilderness and you desired food. Like you craved food. Um, we are to desire God. Ask John Piper. He wrote a whole book called that desiring God, right? Like that's the only thing it's good to ask John Piper about. Um, <laughs> But, you know, this idea of desiring God is that same word. And so desire in and of itself is not bad. The problem is when it becomes uh, something to the degree that we, we no longer find what we have is adequate. Mm-hmm. And I think it's why a lot of people struggle with depression, anxiety, um, is because we spend our life in this space. So, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, how many, uh, <laughs> my first thought is how many, uh, how much different my life would look, would have looked like over a 10 year block if that was the teaching I had had early on us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm glad that we're discussing this passage now in a time where we're all forced to be inside mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, where we should be responsible and stay inside. Um, because I mean, it becomes this game of like, you know, I've seen at least in my social media circles that I'm in a breakdown of the, uh, you know, I don't see as many selfies or like uh, high quality comparisons or, you know, you know, things like that. It's just people taking pictures of what's actually going on. So there's, it seems like there's been less of a, uh, uh, what's, what's the right word? Less pressure to put some well put together uh, argument or um, version of ourselves out there. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about cheating on our own lives and, and just this idea of gratitude and thankfulness of, of what we have, not, you know, not to get too cheesy with this, but it's just like, 
<clears throat> you know, I one of the things I really like to do is, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before with my social media is take a picture of something that's broken and write blessed on it. Mm, <laughs> like yeah. usually involving stuff with my house. And it's, you know, I've had, I've been contacted by friends. just like, we know it really is a, a huge blessing to own a home. And I'm like, yeah, no, I fully understand this. But the idea is that even if you have something that is great, it doesn't mean that things still aren't going to get messed up. And when yep. that happens, it's okay. Like, this is just, this is part of life. You just have to, you know, work through it, hopefully. Um, and so it just, you know, I'm living in the suburbs for the first time. Yep. I'm the only, one of the only lawns that has a ton of dandelions in it. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm feeling the pressure of, do I need to go out and buy stuff to treat my lawn so I don't have dandelions? Like, is this the standard that's been put out? Uh, what about the bees? Do I actually care for the bees if I'm going to put out stuff that kills dandelions? Like, what am I supposed to do? And so, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this uh, new teaching. Mm -hmm. so at least new to me teaching in Matthew 5. Yeah. Good. And it's, it's, it's great. Like, you know, it's like when I reread the sheep and the goats and found hope in it. Right. Yeah. I think this would be a lot more beneficial to be teaching this perspective to our youth that you're always going to be confronted by, by all these pictures, all these images, all these stories that demonstrate how much greener the grass is, uh, other places, literally in some cases. Yeah. And that, 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 that if we live in that space, we become more and more dissatisfied with what we have. And when we become more and more dissatisfied with what we have, we stop living in our own space and we start cheating on our own life with these other things. Um, you know, so now I want to say, George, that we just now did a simple cultural and context reading or maybe let's say a simple uh, cultural reading of this passage. Sure. Um, now, if we put it in context and the Sermon on the Mount is actually about subverting empire, and this is actually being spoken to an oppressed people that are currently occupied by Rome, the streets are littered with crosses of being people being reminded of their place in the world. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying to them, I tell you, it says not to commit adultery, but I tell you not to even covet. Um, what do you think that that is in the minds of an oppressed people? Because <laughs> it was interesting. One of the, the, uh, folks on the the discussion last night she said that she's often heard some of the dangers of the way that jesus is interpreted as a uh oppressed or minority individual mm -hmm. is that this keeps him in his peacefulness his his beatnik peacefulness uh it keeps them oppressed and it tells them it's okay to remain oppressed and 
you know, of course, you know that I strongly push against it. I think Jesus was trying to find ways to subvert empire, to overthrow it, not yeah. to just say, be happy with what you have. So clearly... No, we I, all have our cross to bear. <laughs> right. I don't, I think clearly Jesus, I shouldn't say clearly, but I, th- I believe deeply that Jesus is not telling this oppressed people, uh, just be happy, you're alive. Right? Yeah. Don't. So what do you think Jesus is saying to this people if, if he's talking and this is about subverting empire? I honestly, I have no clue. I, I, I'm sure I could probably give some type of an answer, but this is, that's a question now living with this new teaching. I have to sit and think about because I don't think that my privilege will let me see through that unless I thought about it for a little bit. Sure. Because, and, and this is no, this is going to sound like I'm like, you know, uh, I walked you into this. Um, (laughs) Okay. But but you're in your privilege yeah. and in our current situation as Americans, right? Sure. Your thought went to lawn care. Oh, of course. Right. And that's, that's the sign of the privilege that you're speaking of. Right. Yeah. And this is way bigger. Like, I don't think Jesus was concerned about whether or not people's, you know, had dandelions Yeah. Uh, and people weren't walking away going, Oh, it's okay for my yard not to be as pristine as my neighbors. Sure. Um, so any thoughts about where you imagine Jesus's listeners? I mean, yeah, of of course I've got thoughts. I just need to, uh, I just need to think about it for a little bit. Do you know what I'm going to do? Uh, I'm going to do what I would normally do in a discipleship setting. Oh, great. (laughs) And I'm going to say, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to wrestle with this. Oh, good. (laughs) I want you to think about it. Yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot and force you to answer. Okay. But I want you to think about it. I want the listeners to think about this. And one, I'd love to hear people's responses and ideas on our Facebook page or Twitter account, whatever. Yeah. But I want people to really dig in because this isn't, though I think the principles apply to our lawn care and the pressure to live up to the standards of our Voltron, social media Voltrons that we see out there. I think that the principles fit there. But I think what Jesus is talking about is so much bigger than even that. Um, Yes. So, And I know you do too. Um, So let's... Let's uh, challenge our listeners to think about how we can think about this in a manner of social justice and a manner of oppressed individuals in a manner like that. Um, So I want that to be for them and you, but I also want to add a piece that I think is really important to this understanding of sexual ethics. Okay. Um, We have made sexuality sensuality, uh, attraction, all of that taboo. And I know you and I've talked about that in the past. And in our process of making that taboo, we've caused un, 
do harm to so many Christians. Um, I want to point out a few things about the problem with that. We have an entire book in the Bible that is fan fiction erotica. It's called the Song of Solomon, right? And it is, yes. it, is <laughs> it is totally <laughs> fan fiction erotica. I've never heard right? it referred to as that, but yeah. You know, uh, what's the vampire movie? Um, Twilight has its fan fiction of Fifty Shades of Grey. Tora, Tora has its fan fiction of Song of Solomon. Oh, man. So here's an entire book in the Bible that is just erotica. Then the same word for intercourse or sexual intimacy is used to talk about our relationship with God. We are supposed to know God. That word knowing God is sexual intimacy. We are supposed to think about uh, the sexual intimacy we have with God. So when it says know God, that's what it's saying. If it says God knows God's people, that's what it's saying, right? Like this whole picture of sexual intimacy. And we have it over and over in the text. And our desire for God, all of that stuff is implicitly sexual. God cre- God said it's not good for man to be alone. The very first thing happens is he creates a sexual partner for humankind. Right. So everything in the text, not everything, but most of the things in the text come back to this sexual identity, this sexual intimacy that exists as a powerful uh, expression of our very humanity. Part of what makes us human, part of what makes us in the image of God is our sexuality. And instead of being embarrassed about it and ashamed about it uh, and making it taboo, we should instead be embracing it. We shouldn't be embarrassed of, of it or afraid of it. Instead, it should be very much a, a part of who we are uh, in this world. I, I think that that's so important and we need to have that in front of us when we think about it because we're afraid to have these conversations. Um, we're embarrassed about these conversations. All of this stuff. And I go, no, this was common language from God. Um, and that is so important for us. And I think could be healing for us as members of the faithful and maybe healing for us just as individuals listening and realizing that if you are, if you find yourself to be too much of a sexual being, you're not a deviant. You might know more intimately what it means to know God because of that in you right? That it doesn't have to be a negative, that that can actually be a positive uh, expression of who you are. Um, so any thoughts about that, George? Uh, none that I would feel comfortable sharing right now. Fair because, enough. Because you know me, I like to sit and think about <laughs> about things. But I, I think that you touched on something, yeah, that is completely overlooked, the, but knowing God, the idea that, um, you know, because often uh, 
our Christian sexual ethic is still stuck in puritanical uh, ideals. And it's just, it it, it does so much more harm than, than good. No doubt. No doubt. And it's, it breaks my heart because I would argue that part of the reason the church has just as high, if not higher of a divorce rate is because of this, this manipulated uh, shortfall of sexual ethics. We have people getting married too young because they want to have sex. Uh, we get have people uh, who have been taught their whole life that sex is bad, 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 bad. Now you're married. It's good, good, good. And that's not something you don't undo 18, 20, 25, 30 years of an idea on something and all of a sudden because of one sentence I do yeah it's all of a sudden okay and it fixes it and so we have all kinds of dysfunction in our marriages and in our relationships because here we are a sexual creature and we're told that we're supposed to be a non-sexual creature um so this is so important uh, and has been such a huge burden on people in the church. And the irony is the guilt and shame we've created on people based on Matthew 5, 17 and 18, I'm sorry, 27 and 28 uh, is, is guilt and shame that didn't need to happen. And that interpretation of the text is so minimizing what the text is actually calling us to. Which is really weird, considering that's never happened before in the history of church. An interpretation? <laughs> that was minimizing what the text was saying. Well, and the worst part to me is that oftentimes when we minimize the text, I don't think it causes the amount of harm that's so easily visible in individual people as this one. Oh, yeah. I think minimizing some of the text around women in leadership has. Um, and I think minimizing the text around uh, perceived LGBT, uh, you know, condemnation has. Oh, yeah. But this is another one that, that has. But I think a lot of times when we minimize the text, we just make it uh, ineffective as opposed to harmful. Um, but this is definitely one of the ones that causes a great amount of harm. And really, this is causing us to some, calling us to something so powerful and so potentially healing and freeing. And instead, we've made it oppressive, yeah. which is the great irony, unfortunately. Well, if you listeners have any thoughts on that or want to respond to Don's challenge, shoot us an email. Evangelbros at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Evander Bros, and we're still on Patreon. Uh, so if you want to stop there, feel free to. And I, I, I want to do a shout out to all of our Patreon followers. That is such a huge help to us because there are costs for us incurred in this, and we don't make money off this podcast. Um, we aren't that cool yet, uh, <laughs> and probably never will be. Yeah. Um, and so just very grateful, even if it's just a dollar, a couple of dollars or whatever. Um, 
just really genuinely grateful for that support. It helps us keep up our subscriptions to different things. We can put the podcasts out and do it as best we can. So thank you to those that do that. Yes. Thank you very, very much. Um, And hey, who knows, now that we're in the same city again, hopefully we'll be able to do some live thing with our supporters uh, after lockdown is relaxed or we can do it in a way that's healthy. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, Well, I have been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.